Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Before we get into this week's episode, I need to tell you something very important. The Singing Teachers Talk podcast will be airing its 100th episode on the 1st of March 2023. And so, to celebrate this milestone and to thank all of our amazing listeners, we are giving away an incredible prize to one lucky winner. This is your chance to nab a one-year BAST membership where you will be able to access an array of masterclass videos, plus recordings from every single one of our Focus On events. That's over a thousand pounds worth of knowledge and singing teacher goodness. You will only be able to enter on the 1st of March, so make sure you subscribe and hit the bell icon so you get notified as soon as the 100th episode airs. We'll be sharing some more details of how to enter in the next few weeks, but in the meantime, on with the podcast, where I am joined by a singer-songwriter, speech pathologist and voice rehabilitation specialist. She is also the author of Everyday Voice Care, the lifestyle guide for singers and talkers, with other publication credits including the Journal of Voice and Voice and Speech Review. Her book is a staple material for vocal health education and was recommended by Dr. Ginevra Williams in episode 75 of this podcast, Vocal Rehabilitation for Singers, as her all-time favourite book. Joanna Kasdan, thank you so much for your company today and welcome to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Happy to be with you. Can you believe that your book, Everyday Voice Care, is now, well, over 10 years old? When I, when, I, when I read it, um, yes, <laughs> I can tell that it's, it is 10 years old. But I'm, I'm happy that it's still in use and still being discovered and appreciated. Mm. What was the catalyst for you to actually write this book in the first place? I, I think it was when I was focusing more on being a teacher and not myself touring and performing. And I started to hear bits and pieces from other teachers and I just put together a little two-page Xerox copy of, of information. And then as I began, as I sort of made my, my transition into the field of speech pathology, and there was so much health and anatomy information um, that I sort of expanded my handout and then had the chance to sort of self-publish a book and then the fortuitously um, had a connection with the music publisher Hal Leonard who already had a book for instrumental players on how not to get injured and so they saw this as a sort of perfect complement to that and so 10 years ago they they brought it out and it's been it's been selling steadily Mm, often mm. often through teachers' word of mouth, recommending it to students. You are a singer yourself, and you mm -hmm. toured in the feminist folk circuits of the 1970s and 80s. So what were your experiences with your own vocal health, and were you noticing anything in the other people around you? You know, at that time, I didn't have much awareness. Um, I did live with music all of my life. My formal training, my college degree is actually in acting and theater arts. So I had a certain amount of technique from that, which was as good a vocal warm-up for folk singing um, and getting words across um, as anything. And I didn't have a lot of trouble with my voice other than getting somewhat tired and dry about halfway through the second set. 
but I was afraid to tell anyone about it and sort of hoped people wouldn't notice or see that I was embarrassed about it. I had no clue what was going on. I had no idea of going to a doctor. I just sort of struggled through and warmed up the next night and hoped it would go better. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really only once I was off the road and settled in LA and, and spending more time as a teacher and then making the transition into becoming a speech pathologist, that all the health information sort of came came in. I said, oh, that's probably what was going on. And, oh, that's what people are talking about. And it, that was just the early, sort of late 80s, early 90s. And all people were saying was, you need to drink a lot of water and avoid reflux. Mm. I mean, that's what the vocal health experts were saying. That's what the doctors were saying. Um, and I, I just poked around and, and decided that most of the information that was available for singers was written as a medical textbook and with this very um, sort of highfalutin, we know best, if your voice is hurting, just shut up. Um, it wasn't user-friendly. Mm. And of course, this was when the internet was starting to boom and there was just this chasm between what singers were actually dealing with in everyday life and the kind of information they were getting. The information was good, but it was not presented in a way that I thought was helpful. So that was really the impetus, was was to write something in simple language that anyone in Freshman Voice 101, whether an actor or a singer or a teenager just taking lessons or whatever, um, could digest in little bites, practical solutions, and um, really to to make the information more available and accessible. Mm. The book is peppered with these quotes that are very apt to the chapter and the topic. Was that something you planned or had you like accumulated all of these quotes that had resonated with you over the years? And- yeah, it was, it, it, I, I like to make patchworks when I, when I do hobbies, they're often patchwork collage kind of things. And I am a secret literary nerd as well as a science nerd. And um, it, it was also a way of, again, crossing the boundaries between health science and poetry and art, was to pull in something from Shakespeare or something from the what's called the Black National Anthem, which is the quote that closes the book. Um, just things that are, that are real and inspiring in everyday life. But the people have been talking about, you know, there's a there's a quote from Shakespeare about, you know, a soldier who's has lost his voice because he's been screaming all day. Yeah, this is nothing new. Mm, relatable across time. Right, right. And in the book, you advise the reader to understand and tolerate that contradiction is part of the health journey. And that's referring to how sensations we feel can be contradictory to what is actually happening. So mm-hmm. how do you best advise the singer to get a handle on that? Well, it's it's a little bit tricky because we have to trust our sensations without over-interpreting them. Mm-hmm. Because the conscious parts of the throat are about an inch or an inch and a half away from the vocal cords. And I'll I'll give um, this most fundamental bit of information that is that is still counterintuitive, but but so important, is that it feels like the mouth and the throat are all one thing, and so if I drink something, it should help my voice mm. because that because the voice is down here, and I drink and it should go down, 
And so we have all this folklore about what to put in your tea and so many other recipes that I've read from sing that singing teachers are still recommending, mm. not realizing that just behind where we can't see and we stop feeling because unconscious parts of the body take over, the throat divides into two passageways that need to be very separate. One of them is the passageway for air, goes down to the lungs, and the other is the passageway for food and water. And, we, and the body does not want to get those confused. Mm. The job of the vocal cords in the body is to be the guard gate in the airway and make sure that nothing <laughs> like food or drink gets anywhere close. So mm. your vocal cords themselves don't care what you put in your tea as long as the tea goes down the other hallway mm. <laughs> and doesn't touch them. But it feels like, well, the tea sort of warms my mouth and tastes good. Therefore, it ought to help this other thing that's hurting. And it ought to make sense, but it doesn't, just because we're right on the boundary between what's conscious and what's unconscious. Mm. And there's also the homunculus, if I'm not wrong in saying that, the, the kind of goblin figure that is our hands are, are, are massive in our sensory awareness. And then we've got this and tiny... The mouth. Yes, the and mouth the mouth. Is, the tongue is massive. Yeah. And then you see the throat. Um, and I, I believe, I'm trying to, it's, a, it's an image I haven't wanted to remember because <laughs> it's a bit <laughs> it, freaky. It, 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 but I think it, I remember that the throat yeah. isn't particularly big. No, no, again, it's designed to work unconsciously. It's mm. your airway. You need to be able to breathe even if you're unconscious or asleep. Mm. And so there's swallowing and throat clearing and all kinds of airway protection, survival things that happen. So that system is designed by survival to be out of mind and unconscious. And so, no, it doesn't show up in the sensory system. But if you look at the homunculus for the amount of brain power in controlling that area, it's quite large. Mm. Because we do have all this nuance of vocal tone and loudness and social expression, you know, just because it's the boundary between what's conscious and unconscious, it's still a really, really rich area mm. for um, neuro inputs from the body, from the emotions, from the mind, from the spirit, from the mood, from the social interaction and how I feel as I'm talking to you. All of that comes together right here, mm. um, which is what's miraculous about the sound of the voice is that it carries all of those conscious and unconscious signals all at the same time. Mm. So how then can we make sure or be as close to, because I'm not sure we can ever be sure, that the sensation we're following and the tool that we try to follow that with is the right one? I think one of the functions of having a daily warm-up routine is that it becomes a self-diagnostic. Mm. And everybody should kind of know, yeah, within a half step, this is my typical range at this time of day. Mm. And if that starts to change consistently, then there's a problem. If it takes a little more effort to get sound going, you make a note of that. So it's really about getting to know your own instrument. Again, not from a fearful place of, oh, what's wrong with it today? Mm -hmm. But just being able to observe, just as we observe oh, I'm feeling a little off in my digestion. What did I eat yesterday that would be contributing to that? Just from a problem-solving point of view. And you get to know what your own 
sort of baseline or neutral everyday functioning is like. And then you're going to notice more carefully when something goes wrong. There's also a basic rule that transient problems with the voice should recover in a day or two. If someone goes to a rock concert and they're screaming and they're singing loudly over all that noise, you're going to be husky when you get home and you're going to be a little bit husky the next day. Mm. But in 24 hours, that should resolve. Mm. If that kind of thing is happening repeatedly, it's going to stay more and more scratchy, more and more of the time. And that's the sign of difficulty. Because the cells, the, the sort of lining, the, the, the cells that get the most immediate bruising or swelling f- turn over very quickly. It's, it's like getting a little sore inside your mouth. It's mm-hmm. a drag, but it heals quickly because there's a lot of blood supply. Mm-hmm. It's the things that linger more than a day or two that you really want to be concerned about. So again, getting to know your own instrument and what your own normal fluctuations are from Mm. day to day. If a singer is always husky, that's how they've known their voice. It's there's a there's a breathiness and there's there's a husky tone to it. Mm -hmm. Can that ever be a normal baseline? Or would we expect clarity and non hoarseness and non breathiness to be what we're aiming for? There is a range of normal you know, vocal cords come in all shapes and sizes, just like noses and ears. Unfortunately, I've um, got a big, big set of ears. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got an Eastern European nose. But one would really need to go back to childhood and how and what the conditions were. You know, someone who's been screaming and yelling since they were three years old probably has a little bit of deep internal scar that will always be there and is now their normal. Mm. Someone who used to have a perfectly clear tone in their voice, but for the last couple of years has been a little more husky, that's more likely to be something that, that's more of about contemporary usage. Mm. So it's a bit hard to tell the, the default advice is to get an exam and have a good doctor look at your throat. And I think your listeners probably know the average ear, nose, throat doctor is not going to know enough to find those nuances of singers. Even if they've got the fancy video strobe equipment, they won't understand what they're looking at. Mm. So you want to ideally find your way to a specialty voice clinic where people look at the vocal cord vibration and slow motion and large size, and they can see, oh yeah, there's that one one little glitch where the, the surface is sticking to the underlayer and you're losing vibration, but you can work around that versus, yeah, there's a little pathology on the very edge of the cord, you know, getting into that kind of detail, mm, which yeah. then determines how to work with it. Absolutely. So again, I couldn't give you a straight answer because a lot of things are individual. Yeah, Having a yeah. good clinic to go to um, and having that identified before you need it is is good advice. But I know health systems are breaking down everywhere. Not everybody has that kind of access. So we do try to troubleshoot mm. on our own instead. Speaking of contradictions, mm-hmm. how do you suggest that a singer best process contrasting information from external resources? They may have seen a teacher that says, for example, lay off the coffee it's it's no good for the hydration and then another Mm -hmm. teacher says actually coffee doesn't do that that's fine you have your coffee Mm -hmm. how can we process that and go okay which one relates to me which advice should i follow well certainly trial and error and getting to know one's own system is important 
Some people find, for instance, and I write about this in the book, some people find that dairy products are an issue. And there's all this lore about dairy products give you phlegm, therefore no singer should have dairy products. Well, then there's the story of an opera singer who had big bowls of ice cream before her performance every night. I don't remember who it was or whether it's true, but, you know, some people eat dairy products and they're fine. Mm. And a doctor that I know actually looked into all the research and couldn't find any perfect clinical evidence that dairy created more phlegm in the mouth and throat. Nevertheless, some people experience that. And so you get to know that. In terms of how, who to trust in your sources, the age of the teacher matters because if a teacher got their own information in the 1970s and is not part of ongoing continuing education to get updated and doesn't use the internet very much, they may not be as up to date. They may be very well intended, but they may not be as up to date as someone who's young and is involved in a lot of online forums where people discuss more recent research. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of, are we following the master to apprentice folklore, follow my perfect advice and don't listen to anyone else, that kind of lineage of singing teachers? Mm. versus the younger folks who I'm delighted to to discover are really pouring into everything that they can find online and challenging things that are in my book, which is fine, and finding other books and other sources. That kind of teacher is more likely to be up to date, but also more likely to understand that we don't know everything yet mm. and that new information is always coming out and that things are changing. So there's a sense of, is this teacher humble enough to be willing to change their mind versus the old school, um, I am the expert, you must listen to me and do exactly what I say, mm. which is just a different, a different approach. Mm. Now, some students need the structure and the expertise that they think they can count on forever. And they follow that teacher's advice and they do just fine. Mm. So, no, again, no firm answer, but a combination of open-mindedness and self-trust, I would say. Mm. I guess it really also depends on that person's particular experience. If somebody is a is an ENT versus somebody who's a nutritionist or some something like that, so that sure. can be. Different. I just like to go here. Here's the information. <laughs> I'm going to be on the fence right. <laughs> and not decide right. what I think. You know, when it comes to breathing technique, people are told all kinds of things, and I just say I'm an agnostic. The research that I say says that. Deep, di low diaphragmatic breathing works for some people and more rib cage breathing works for other people. And let's find out what your body prefers mm -hmm. <laughs> and we'll go from there. In your spare time, you like to read neuroscience mm -hmm. and you presented at the American Speech Language Hearing Convention in 2017 on the topic of brain, mind and voice therapy. Mm -hmm. And in both the presentation and your book, you give the lovely little anecdote about your first voice lesson mm -hmm. where a teacher asked you if you could talk louder without shouting. And that really resonated with you, that verbal cue you were primed for, you explain. So what are your thoughts now on helping give the most appropriate verbal cue to a singer? Uh, have a big repertoire, have a lot of different ways to cue the thing that you want, mm. but then use the simplest possible sensory language to do it. And pay attention to which parts of what you instruct the student gets, mm -hmm. reinforce that, 
don't go into a long poetic explanation about why you're giving them a certain cue because that wastes their time and they're not really able to process what they're experiencing. Modify the cue a little bit. Okay, you got the first part right, but then your breath collapsed. You know, whatever whatever it is. Um, I do believe that metaphors and sensory language are extremely helpful, and I've lectured elsewhere to singing teachers about why. But again, I don't believe in getting too flowery or too philosophical or poetical in the moment that you're teaching the skill. Mm. Because the student learns the skill by what it feels like and what it sounds like and whether it helps them have more stamina and more of the sound that they're looking for with, the le- with less effort. Mm-hmm. So it's about putting effort into the right place and putting their attention into the right place. And often my cues are, you paid attention to your feet, but I think you kind of lost the attention to your jaw. So often I'm cueing their brain as to what part of the system (laughs) we're focusing on right now. But I'm always teaching basics. I'm working with people who are injured, people who are coming back to singing after some time away, or people that want a basic technical review. I'm not dealing with repertoire and interpretation and those other things which might get poetic. And you might want to talk about, no, make make those little staccato notes more golden and less silver. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be right in a performance coaching. For me, it's it's no use at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm always going back to my, my own bias and my own sense as a learner is relatively kinesthetic. But otherwise, I just want to be as simple and direct as possible. And if one cue doesn't work, I want to know that I've got extras mm-hmm. and other things to try. I'll tell a very quick story that I've used before of a, a voice lesson that I was sitting in on. Um, The student asked me to come and sit with her and her teacher. Um, And the teacher only had one way to cue each thing that she was teaching. And she only had a repertoire of about seven different principles that she taught. And if the student didn't get something right, she just said it louder until she was screaming. And I could tell that she did not have the language to explain it a different way for what that student would do. Now, in this case, the student did okay. She understood most of it. But the teacher had not gone to a lot of workshops and had not learned a lot of different ways of explaining the same thing. Mm. So I do invite teachers to keep studying with different teachers because even if they're teaching the same stuff you've heard before, they're going to use slightly different language, which might be useful for you with that student who didn't get it the first phrase. Mm. Do you think there's anything about the injured singer being more receptive to something very very nuanced very targeted because they're injured in in your instruction of what you want them to do do you think that plays a part because they just need the thing to get them better rather than a self-exploratory thing or um that might be true certainly they're more motivated to make a change they're a little more desperate but they might also be more frightened mm. and less willing to give up what their favorite teacher told them because that's what they want to trust. So it's it's an individual counseling process. Mm. Vocal health is a lifestyle. And from your reading, have you come across anything interesting regarding the process of habit forming and relating that to getting rid of habits that might not be serving us vocally and putting something in that is a little bit healthier? Well, I think there's a lot that, that people can look up in the psychology of, of, um, of changing lifestyle habits. Mm. 
my own experience is to make small changes a little at a time. Mm. But some people do better with a clean slate and I'm just going to do all of these things at once and sort of plunge in, um, like going to a monastery for a month mm. and, and then gradually adding things back in. Um, for instance, for reflux management. Mm. If someone has not really been diagnosed, but they have kind of the signs and symbol and, and symptoms, they're clearing their throat a lot, it feels thick, it, it, it's a little bit rough, especially in the morning, there, there are various common, common signs. I might say, cut out alcohol, cut out coffee, take an over-the-counter antacid at bedtime, and, and be strict with that for two or three weeks and see if it makes a difference. Because those are the simplest most obvious things that are most like, oh, and, and don't eat a lot, you know, three hours before bedtime. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that will make the, the most difference. But a colleague of mine will say, no, I want them on a really bland diet, small meals throughout the day, go to the extreme for two weeks, and they're really going to feel enough of a difference that then they can start adding things back. So you have to get to know your own psychology and what you have social support for. What are you currently reading in the neuroscience field and what's your current pondering that's, that's keeping your brain thinking about a particular topic? Oh, those are two slightly different questions. I just finished a book about mirror neurons um, and sort of the history from the early 2000s of the discovery of mirror neurons in monkeys and, and everything about imitative learning and what that has to do with empathy and understanding what other people are feeling because we sort of mirror in our own minds and systems what that's about. Um, and what's in my mind is that I want to write to the gentleman and say, wait a minute, it's not just mirror because that's a visual system. There's so much we learn about people from the sound of their voices and I have published this term, I think we need to talk about echo neurons and how a singer makes us feel simply by the sound of their voice. Mm. Um, and there's not very much on that at all. Mm. Although in my own neuro writing, I, I did manage to get the, get the phrase in print. So nice. 20 years from now, if people are writing about echo neurons, you need to, <laughs> you need to give me credit for the yeah. terminology. Um, I'm going to be speaking um, on the topic of empathy and self-care and empathy and boundaries. And so how to explain that and develop little exercises for teachers and therapists is that's sort of where my, where my creative work mm. is, is going right now. Because we, we want to do well. We want to do good for our clients. We want to feel what they're feeling as a clue to what might be going on. But we also need to be clear on what's their feeling and what's mine and what am I overreacting to. Um, and again, knowing one's own system and one's own energy flows and breath patterns. For me, I tend to pick up in my body what's going on with someone. Oh, they're a little bit tight in their diaphragm. I feel that kinesthetically, but I need to know, again, what my own baseline is so that I can distinguish was that just because I'm actually feeling tight or I'm having indigestion? Mm. Or is that something genuine that I'm observing in them that, that maybe I want to address? So mm. it's kind of that, that how sensitive can we be to other people without losing the sense of self? And actually, this book on mirror neurons did, did discuss that. There, there is something in the brain system that, that does recognize 
I'm, I could imitate what someone else is doing, but I know that it's them, not me. Mm, mm. So it's interesting stuff about boundaries. I think it was in the book, Musicophilia, and I could be wrong there, but there was something that the author wrote, which was picking up signals in the random language that people use. So I think he said he was meeting with somebody and the the gentleman went off to the bathroom and when he came back the guy was singing just five more minutes just five a, a song that was that had that lyric in mm-hmm. and the the gentleman he was he was with thought oh i think that might be a a, a cue as to where your mind is at you this is where this social is over in the next five minutes because you you're giving me like a, a cue which right is very because that lyric had come into his mind yeah. Uh, some people joke that when they become parents, they have the perfect excuse to get out of certain social events. And this could apply to vocal health. I mean, I love the fact that clubs and bars aren't good for me vocally, so I can avoid them because I don't like them anyway. I'd much mm-hmm. rather be at home with my slippers on and a novel in my hand. Um, so I'm just interested to know, have you ever used your own vocal health as like a get out of jail card of something that you didn't really want to do? (laughs) Um, I don't think I have had to do that. But I do emphasize, um, and this is a blog post that I need to put back on now that my website is reconstructed, that's an aside. Um, I do talk about the grand bargain of of vocal health, that anyone who sort of steps out into the world saying, I want to use my voice in public, I have something unique that that gets expressed through my body and my words and my music in this internal, deeply personal way of the voice. The universe says, great, let me tell you what's in the rest of that contract. Here's the fine print. You're not gonna go to loud bars and restaurants as much. Uh You're gonna be careful about your diet. You're going to be careful about your sleep. You're going to set boundaries in the relationships of the people that keep wanting you to overstep those vocal health guidelines. Mm. Um, you're probably going to drink less alcohol. Um, you know, there's there's sort of a, a an internal physical and mental health checklist that comes with taking on the role of being a public singer. Mm. And that's, that's the bargain. Mm. It seems a bit like a party pooper in a way. And I'm just thinking of the young singers who are at college studying, maybe they're at theatre school, whatever that might be. And they're at the age where clubbing is new, drinking is hopefully new. Um, Mm -hmm. How can we build in that discipline to not totally eradicate a social life and because we might need that as like a comfort and, and enjoy the little things that life gives us. Mm-hmm. but also not to go the other way and and ruin our voice. And so we're kind of balancing this seesaw of considering vocal health, but also not becoming neurotic, because I feel like it's a, right. a, a very thin line to walk. Right. Um, I think it's about being strategic with your calendar. Mm-hmm. If an actor or a, or a musical theater performer knows in advance when their tech week is going to be and when they're going into performance. You know, if someone has a bachelorette weekend that's going to involve a lot of drinking and screaming, 
you're probably going to decline that mm. because it's in the middle of, of tech or it's right before tech week and you can't afford to lose your voice. Mm. But you'll take that friend out and celebrate with her in a quieter place some other time. Mm. If you have a show Friday night, you don't go out Thursday night, but you, you tell your friends you'll meet them on Tuesday. My, my colleague in Chicago, Kate DeVore, who's also a, a speech therapist and vocal coach, has a wonderful principle that when the non-singers in your life think you're being a diva, that means you're doing enough. Oh, I like Because that. even instrumental musicians or dancers won't quite, well, dancers will start to understand what it takes. But instrumental musicians will not understand. Mm. And so if you get that blank look of, well, why can't you come out partying with us? Because I need to sing. I've got a church gig tomorrow morning. Mm. Um, And so it's about quietly educating people and just doing your vocal care, but not making a big deal about it. Not going on and, oh, I've got to be so careful, you know, and, and being a brat to other people about it. You know, there's a difference between being a diva toward yourself and being a diva towards others. Mm. But then that it's part of it's part of becoming a professional. Just, you know, a dancer learns how to take care of their shoes and how to take care of their feet. And the athlete learns how to bind up their shoulder and, and go to physical therapy. And the singer takes care of their instrument in different ways, but it's just as important. Paradoxically, there are some young folks that I've met who get into vocal trouble. They develop nodules while they're in college or they have some other kind of vocal injury. And it's a really, really good thing mm. because they learn early mm. before they get to the West End, before they get to Broadway. The light bulb has gone on that their voice is not indestructible and that there are daily steps they can take to recover and to prevent injury. Mm. So sometimes a very small slip and fall early on can be an educational moment. Mm. Mm. Um, but we don't want too many of them. No. And so you, you do have to choose the company you keep. There's a, uh, I was in a workshop um, with college students and a gentleman was saying, um, you know, I used to be in a group of friends that were always partying. And now I'm trying to take my singing more seriously. And I do need to sing in church on Sunday mornings. That matters to me a great deal personally and spiritually. But my friends think I'm going to abandon them if I don't go out Saturday night. Mm. And so we talked about how do you just shift and say, I've got new priorities, I still care about you as friends, but Saturday nights I need to be by myself. And, you know, you're warriors in in your way, and I'm being a warrior in my Mm self-care. And then you gradually get to know a different group of people who will support the vocal health, not not to cut off your old buddies from the neighborhood, but um, surround yourself with the people that understand. Mm. What's it going to do on the other end if somebody is really concerned that, and, and they go to real extremes of making sure that they are vocally healthy, they're worried at every, every niggle, or what would your advice be to those singers? Well, that's probably going to be related to being worried about other things in their life. There may be an, an overall anxiety component. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about learning how to pay attention to your sensations internally as a singer, but there are people that fixate on it too much. But the difference there is that they notice a little something and then jump into a kind of over-rational problem-solving, what could it be checklist Mm. and hypochondria, which is different than simply being aware Mm -hmm. 
with what a very wise psychologist once called um, compassionate curiosity. So that we can be aware and maybe a little bit, mm, do I need to tweak this or that? But if you're starting to spin out into, oh my God, do I have nodules? Oh my God, did I just give myself spasmodic dysphonia? Oh my God, did I just hurt myself? Dial it back, have a teacher, have a coach, have a health advisor that you can go to who will talk you down from the extremes, but also give a listen and say, mm, you know, that might be something that's lasted for a week or so. You know, you might want to get an appointment and have it looked at for reassurance purposes. Mm. So it's about having a team of support so that you're not just spinning out on your own. Mm. Yeah, really important. Yeah. If you were to write this book now mm -hmm. or to have a new edition, mm -hmm. what would you include that you didn't in the first place or what chapter would you expand upon? Well, certainly the reflux information has, has gotten a lot more detailed. Um, there's some updates there. Um, the comments about using steam, well, we now know that nebulizers are actually a little bit better. Steam is still good, but a nebulizer is better. So there are some um, sort of health things that have been upgraded in that time. I think the biggest change is that we have to address COVID. We have to address long covid which attacked the airway and the respiratory system. So singers were especially um, hit hard by it, as well as the loss of live performance, singing through a mask, rehearsing in a mask, all of those issues, um, and Zoom fatigue. Mm. People talk and sing differently when we're online um, than when we're in real human contact in the same room. And so um, this, is, this is a new era, and I would certainly want to... Uh, want to write um, as, as helpfully as I could about that. Certainly, there's a lot about long COVID that we don't know. But mm. there are still people who are a year or so post their infection who are still finding breathing problems or quirky paradoxical things happening in their airway mm. um, that at least need to be mentioned, maybe not solved yet, but, but mentioned and acknowledged. Mm. Is there going to be another book or another edition, do you think? I, I hope so. Um, I, I have some other things on my plate at the moment, but I'm, I'm sort of planning uh, later this year to contact the publisher and see if, see if they'd be up for a, for a second edition. I think it's especially because of the changes of the last few years with so much um, vocal performance moving online and so many new health uh, concerns related to the airway. Mm. Um, I, I think that the book that you have in your hands, I'm delighted it's still useful, but it will start to seem out of date mm. in, in an important way. That, anyway, that, that'll be my argument to the publisher. We'll see what happens. Amazing. Well, where can people buy your book or look out for the new edition when it's up and on the shelves and find out more um, about it? It, it, is, it is available on Amazon and it's also available from the publisher Hal Leonard Books. And just, I think if anybody just Googles Everyday Voice Care, um, you'll find it. Or you can go to my new, very simple but rudimentary website, joannacasden.com, and there's a, a menu item for the book, which gives you both of those links to Amazon and to Hal Leonard. Brilliant. And whilst we're making a purchase for that, is there another resource that you would encourage us to check out? There's a nice little book um, by Dr. Adam Rubin called The Vocal Pit Stop. 
and it's a little bit more for doctors, but also for singers. And it, 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 it has a, a slightly different take on a lot of the basic vocal health information. What I love most about it is the last page, which has a decision tree on whether an injured singer should or should not cancel their performance that night or the next night. How important is the performance? How bad is the injury? Can you work around it? Sort of what the doctor and the singer should talk about in making that decision of whether to cancel or not, which I think is incredibly useful. Because some singers, it's a bar gig. You'll get someone to substitute. You'll get your backup singer to do more of the lead. It's not a problem. Someone else is on tour and has 30 crew members who will lose their pay you know, mm -hmm. if you, if, if, if the show can't go on. Yeah. Um, and so it's really helpful to have that kind of thought process spelled out. I think it's a really useful, and it's a short, relatively accessible book, The Vocal Pit Stop. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure, Joanna Kasdan. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me and uh, thank you for using the book and uh, hope it helps people stay healthy out there. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a <clears throat> five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.